Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say, let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. This church has long supported its staff members attending conferences for professional development, and I'm so grateful for that. I was in Indianapolis for one such conference just this past week, and at these conferences, I'm the guy who's uh, watching people between sessions. Uh, I'll sit up front when the session's over. I can kind of listen in on interactions that the speaker is having with folks who come up to ask questions. And one of the questions I'm regularly reflecting on in a setting like that is, what makes some of these leaders so admired, so fruitful, so effective in their leadership and teaching? Uh, but those questions have gotten more complicated in recent years. For one thing, we've seen many Christian celebrities publicly fall from grace. Then add on to that, with every year that goes by, I learn more about how flawed I really am as a leader. And those two factors taken together have me slower to draw conclusions about Christian leaders than maybe I've ever been before. I'm now more frequently asking myself questions like, are my criteria for evaluating Christian leaders even the right criteria? Uh, is that leader really as great behind the scenes as he or she seems to be in public? Or why do I feel drawn to certain leaders? And why do I feel such a lack of interest in being around other leaders? To what degree are my instincts about this aligned with God's heart? And I'm convinced there's got to be ways in which my assumptions about Christian leadership are still at least a little bit off. Our scripture text today is an extended address to a church whose ideas on Christian leadership were all wonky. Maybe in some ways that our own ideas on Christian leadership are still wonky today. So would you turn with me, if you haven't yet, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is page 1012, if you're using the Bible in the chair back in front of you. I will try to put the scripture up on the screen a lot today, but some of it's going to be so small to show the sweep of the passage that it'll be hard to see up on the screen. You're going to want to have a copy in front of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, if you scan the previous page or two before where we're going to start today, you'll be reminded of what we've seen in the letter so far these last few weeks. Here's the Apostle Paul, about 20 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus, writing to an outwardly impressive urban church in the port city of Corinth. Internally, though, this church is a mess. So we saw Paul set the tone early by telling them, hey, stop with the rivalries and divisions. Agree with one another. Find a way to move forward with one heart and mind. And we've seen since that first week that Paul spills a lot of ink over this problem of division. He's been saying things like, hey, you guys are divided against one another because you're operating on this worldly wisdom that's impressed with all the wrong things. If you would just internalize God's wisdom, the kind of wisdom that seems upside down to the world, then you'd be mature enough to realize that we're all on level ground at the foot of the cross. And we're all on the same team. In the coming weeks after this one, Paul's going to move on to other problems in the church. But in today's text, Paul's going to—he's going to sort of make his closing arguments, at least for now, with regards to this first big problem: the problem of forming factions in allegiance to particular Christian leaders. He's going to do so by attempting to rewrite the Corinthians' entire approach toward Christian leadership. So we're going to see that Paul gives us five major messages about Christian leaders. Some primarily aimed at the congregant side, like here's how to view your leaders as a non-leader, and then some primarily aimed at the leader side, like here's how to view your role as a leader. 
We'll have to move through these relatively quickly, but I think there's immense relevance here for all of us, both because most of us will serve in some sort of Christian leadership position at some point, whether as a Sunday school teacher or a parent or a deacon or a small group leader, and because all of us will serve under Christian leaders, this passage helps us approach both the leader and the one under leadership with a mindset that's honoring to the Lord. So first, we're going to see Christian leaders are servants. Take a look at verses 5 through 9 with me as I read along. Christian leaders are servants. Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. Once we start thinking of our leaders as heroes, we're on dangerous ground. Here are the Corinthians arguing, I'm team Apollos. And another arguing, I'm team Paul. And Paul's like, what is Apollos? What is Paul? It's almost like you can picture him saying, no, seriously, sincere question. What is Apollos? What is Paul? We're servants. That's it. We're way down the totem pole. Not nearly as significant as you're making us out to be when you rally around us like we're some sort of superheroes. And by the way, me and Apollos, we're on the same team. We're one, which makes it crazy you guys are trying to pit us against one another. We're co-workers, both of us servants, belonging to and reporting to God. Uh, this is one of the Higgins family's favorite chefs in Chicago, Stephanie Azard. She's from the Girl and the Goat, Little Goat, Duck, Duck, Goat, if you've been to any of those restaurants. In my opinion, she's second only to our own Jay Lee in terms of chefs in the city of Chicago. Um, but we like talking to people who have been to her restaurants. Like, oh, have you been to this one? Have you been to that one? Stephanie Azard, she's amazing, right? Um, now, if I asked you, if I asked you, have you ever been to the girl and the goat? Uh, and you responded, yeah, you too. Who was your waiter? I'd be like, I didn't really notice who was bringing me my food. I was focused on who was running the kitchen. Who sees where I'm going with this, right? Paul's like, hey, Corinthians, that's how foolish it is when what you guys are doing. Who cares who brought you the meal? You're squabbling over the servants? What matters is the chef. He actually uses a gardening analogy in these verses, which is better than the restaurant analogy because of the living nature of the church. Paul planted this church. Apollos watered the church. But Paul's like, come on, guys, there's only one task in this whole process that is actually impressive, and that's who can make a field of crops spring up from a seed? And, of course, only God can do that. We can plant all we want. We can water all we want. But if God doesn't supernaturally cause our planting and our watering work to produce growth, we've only succeeded in making that seed more dark and more wet. So what's the takeaway for us here in verses 5 through 9? I think it's something like, let's not miss out on awe of the master because we're overawed with one of his servants. Let's not miss out on awe of the master because we're overawed with one of his servants, right? Even when it comes to that Christian leader, uh, that Christian celebrity who, if you bumped into them at dinner this evening, 
you'd freeze for a second because you'd be so in awe. Even him or her, that person even, isn't anybody, not in comparison to the God they serve. Second, the work of Christian leaders will be tested. So Christian leaders are servants, and the work of Christian leaders will be tested. Look for that as I uh, read here verses 10 through 17. According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it, for no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. Now, we're going to camp out for a minute unpacking these verses here. Maybe the best way to do it is to ask the who, what, when type questions. So first, what is the work that will be tested? The work of Christian leaders will be tested. What's the work? The work, I think, is building the church. Look at all the building language here associated with the work. And the foundation has already been laid of this structure. So the work we're talking about is the building of the superstructure, the above, above ground part. What? Now who? Who does that work? The way this flows from the planting and watering analogy, you can have in mind that it's at least Apollos in verse 10 that he has in mind. I laid a foundation of skilled master builder. Another builds on it. He's at least thinking of Apollos. But then he speaks generally as if plenty of others are doing this building work too. Each one is to be careful how he builds. There's more builders doing this work. And so presumably this could be extended to many Christian leaders. Even to the person who teaches a kindergarten lesson downstairs or leads a growth group discussion this week, or shares the gospel with a neighbor. Some leaders may be paid to free them up to do more of this building work than others, but this really seems to be the work of any Christian leader to build up the church. Okay, so if all Christian leaders do the work of building up the church, when? When will our construction work be tested? Well, according to the passage, each one's work will become obvious, Verse 13, on the day. The day will disclose it. What day? Well, Paul presumably means the day of the Lord. At the end of the age, the day of judgment. On that day, fire will come. Not the sort of fire that purifies. Not the sort of fire that destroys either, though. This is the sort of fire that reveals. See the revealing language here? Uh... It reveals the quality of workmanship by burning away what's worthless and leaving what's worthwhile. So who, what, when, what about how? How will this work be tested? Meaning, what will make one part of the building withstand the fire while another part of the building is burned up? And I hadn't seen this before this week. But it seems that the way it ends up all has to do with whether the builder used the sorts of materials that are appropriate for the foundation that was laid. Here's what I mean, okay? So follow this with me. If the foundation of the building was Christ, 
verse 11. Okay, we saw that. The only proper sort of structure to build on that foundation, in Paul's mind, is a temple, a place of worship. That's what he says in verses 16 and 17. We find out this building he's been talking about is actually a temple. You are God's temple. God's temple is holy. That's what you are. Place of worship. So, but before Paul ever mentions in verse 17, 16 and 17 that the building he's been talking about is a temple, we can already tell where he's going because the building materials listed are the building materials in Solomon's temple. Verse 12. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, those are temple materials. There's no mention at all of stone or brick in this list, which are the most common materials for building ordinary buildings. He lists those three building materials, unique to the temple and contrasts those with three other types of building materials that people would use in their homes but would clearly not withstand fire, wood, hay, or straw. With all the temple imagery here, Paul's prompting the Christian leader to ask, I think, am I building in such a way that is conducive to fostering worship that will go up from the church to God in Christ? Or am I building a building church best suited for other purposes for example if i realize that my work in the church or your work in the church if we realize our work in the church is making people laugh and making people feel good and helping people find community and helping people enjoy themselves all great things but it's not leading them to give more and more of their lives in worship to the risen jesus then i may be building something a country club whatever but I'm not building God's temple. And as such, any of that apparent good that I did is not going to survive that last day. When the day comes, I'll be forced to acknowledge, hey, that was what it was, but it wasn't built to last. What will last is the sort of construction that moved people toward whole life worship of Jesus. That's what a temple is for. Now, that maybe helps clear up two common misunderstandings of this set of verses here. One is that this passage doesn't actually form a solid foundation for belief in a place called purgatory. Some of you have heard of it, some of you haven't, but the the Catholic Church has long pointed to this passage as support for their doctrine that many Christians will require a cleansing period, a purifying sort of fire after death to burn off some of their sins before they get to go to heaven. They call that purgatory. As you can see, like a close look here, what we're talking about doesn't actually, it makes that hard to justify. After all, and this is the second misunderstanding, who are the ones here who are saved but only through fire? Take a look with me. Who are those people? I, used to, I grew up fearing that I'd be one of those, right, uh, if I lived a life in which I too frequently gave into temptation, right? Maybe some of you did too. Carnal Christians, Campus Crusade used to teach, people who have accepted Jesus as Savior but haven't submitted their lives to Him as Lord, right? There's this category that was taught to some of us growing up that those are the people who are saved but only through fire. But that's not what this says, right? Who is saved through fire here? Not the Christian churchgoer, the Christian leader. You see it? Joe churchgoer is part of the building, verse 9. You are God's field, God's building, right? The Christian leader is the builder who's doing this work spoken of here, this work of building the church. Now, it's possible then for a Christian leader, Paul's saying, to escape with eternal life, because they were truly saved, after all, by grace through faith, but with singed eyebrows, right? Because their ministry work didn't survive Judgment Day. 
the materials they used in doing God's work for the church were shoddy materials, non-temple-type materials. What they did may have encouraged congregants, may have fed the poor, may have impressed people with intellect, but didn't lead people to give their lives to Christ in worship like a temple should. And because it didn't fill that purpose, it didn't last an eternity, meaning that when that person stood before God, he or she had nothing eternal to show for all their ministry hours. The temple wasn't actually made any taller or sturdier or more beautiful because of the building work than it was before they started building. And so they only escaped through fire. Now, that's a pretty serious warning for Christian leaders about the gravity of what we do. But you notice it gets actually more serious in verse 17. There's a possibility raised here that a professing Christian who has served as a leader in the church might finally be destroyed. Verse 15 was saying something different. If you built with flimsy materials, you're going to survive, but only through fire. Verse 17 now says, if you go beyond just like building with shoddy materials and you actually actively destroy God's church, if you're working to tear it down, then you won't escape. You yourself will be destroyed. That's led some to ask, well, where's the line between verse 15 and 17? Where's the line between the person who's just building with shoddy materials and the person who's destroying the church, practically speaking? I don't know. I guess the question we're asking there is, when does the work of an unhealthy Christian leader cross the line from being just worthless to being destructive? It's hard to say. But Paul seems to have every confidence that a genuine Christian who's in a position of leadership will hear this warning and turn from destructive inclinations and thereby remain in the faith. Friends, the work of Christian leaders is going to be tested. And knowing that should be helpful to us in two ways. It's helpful as we consider the leaders over us. As we consider our associate pastor candidates right now as we're searching for one, what materials do they have a track record of building with? Materials conducive to leading us to worship of God and Christ or materials conducive leading us to worship them? And it's also helpful for many of us who will find ourselves in some sort of leadership positions in certain seasons. We ought to ask ourselves, what am I building with? Am I building in a way that my work will withstand the final fire and continue to have significance beyond Judgment Day? Or am I just good at gathering people into a room and making them happy that they came? Third, we'll go faster, that was the longest one. Christian leaders are part of a wealth of resources belonging to the church. Part of a wealth of resources belonging to the church. Let's look at verses 18 to 23. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool, so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, since it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness, Job 5. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. It's in the Psalms. So let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Bottom line here in this section. Paul is like, hey, you're thinking of your inheritance as this, and you're thinking it's a big inheritance. Okay? You're thinking way too small. Your inheritance is actually the universe. 
the teachings of your hero, that's tiny thinking. I'm telling you that all of the church, all of the world, all of life and death, it's all yours. And that's a critical correction because when we think small like that, it affects how we act. Andrew Wilson's right when he says it like this. When we think our inheritance is small and insignificant, we squabble like toddlers over every last bit of it. When we lift up our eyes and see how much is ours in Christ, our tribal allegiances fade into the background. As when Abraham gave Lot the best bit of land because he knew that God would give him everything else. How many of the recent divisions and petty arguments in the American church could have been avoided if we hadn't been holding this scarcity mindset? If we'd been secure in the massiveness of our inheritance? We don't belong to the Christian leaders that we idolize. They belong to us. And we all belong to God. Those leaders who are always telling you how wise they are, Paul's like, look what the Old Testament says about them. He catches the wise in their craftiness. Job 5. The Lord knows that the reasoning is the wiser people. That's Psalm 94. Paul's like, I'm not just making this up. Your Bible has been telling you what I'm saying now all along. Those folks aren't worth boasting in. Let's only boast in God. I appreciated how Tim Keller would talk about Christian leaders who influence us. He uh, used to lament sometimes about how many young preachers sound just like their favorite celebrity preachers, like their parrots imitating what they've heard. And Keller says the better way is to get a whole bunch of rings in your tree. Like, sure, we're all going to have favorites, but broaden that circle, right? Learn from a whole bunch of different voices. Allow yourself to be influenced by a wider circle of folks, and those folks will become rings in your tree, making you thicker, more sturdy. So, question here, maybe, practically. If we pulled up your podcast history this morning, in your reading log, would we see a reflection of this teaching that everything is yours? Our inheritance is a vast ocean. Are you enjoying all of it? Or are you content to just keep swimming around in one particular puddle where you're comfortable? Fourth, Christian leaders answer to God. Christian leaders answer to God. By saying Christian leaders answer to God, we mean that Christian leaders don't ultimately answer to people. Let's look at that in the first five verses of chapter four. A person should think of us in this way, us being the apostles, us being Paul and his team, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it's required that managers be found faithful. It's of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. The backdrop here seems to be that some of the Corinthians don't seem to have a very positive evaluation of Paul. Maybe they're underwhelmed by his preaching in comparison to Apollos, whose public speaking is more technically excellent. In the light of that, Paul responds, Hey, you know, whether you think I'm a good apostle or not, your assessment isn't all that important to me. I don't answer to you, I answer to God. Now, this approach in verse 3 can be abused, right? It has been abused by many Christian leaders. And that ought to make us very slow to ever take up these words 
as our own. That said, there's something important here in verse 3 for all Christian leaders to take away, namely that the Christian leader has to be deeply secure in Christ or else he or she will get eaten alive. You've heard the quip, if Moses took an opinion poll before crossing the Red Sea. But that's true, right? If we have to listen to God, even if that means risking mutiny by God's people. right? Now to clarify, what people think should matter to us to some degree. Uh, the same Paul who says this can say elsewhere, give careful thought to do what's honorable in everyone's eyes. The person who loves to barrel ahead when everybody's raising red flags may not be wise at all, right? But this is reminding us that there is a miss in the other direction too. Namely, we can't let our identity get wrapped up in what people think of us. When we give people that power over us by basing our identity on the opinions of others, it actually becomes deadly for us in two ways. One, their criticism becomes deadly. If you live for people's acceptance, you die from their rejection. But equally deadly, if not more, their praise. When that compliment goes down like chocolate cake, man, we're just inches away from death in that moment. That's why Rudyard Kipling presented the ideal the way he did. He said, if you can receive praise and blame and treat those two imposters just the same. Catch this. This is deep stuff we're talking about here. Can we keep chasing this down for one more minute? The Western world that we live in, the Western world's antidote to the danger of over-caring what people think is, hey, forget what others think of you. All that matters is what you think of you. Good advice or no? Here's the problem I've run into when trying to look within for my identity validation. When I respond to criticism from others by looking down that well inside myself, deep down there, so often what I end up finding is, uh uh-oh. Okay, they weren't totally right about me, but it turns out that some of what's actually down there is even worse than what they criticize me about. Anybody else? So then looking within turns out not to be all that encouraging at all. That's why I love Paul's words here, see? He says, it's of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or any human court. And we in the West are like, yes, amen, forget what people think about us, right? But then he says, actually, it's of little importance to me whether I think I'm doing good work. I don't even judge myself. He's like, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not aware of any errors, but that doesn't mean I'm not making any in my ministry, right? I can be wrong about myself. All that matters is the Lord's judgment of me. Anybody need to hear that this morning? It doesn't really matter what our critics think. It also doesn't really matter what our inner defense lawyer thinks either in defense of us. All that matters is what God thinks, and that will be shown on the day. Check it out, though. Be careful about judging anybody's work, including our own, before that final horn sounds. Right? Don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes. He'll bring it to light. He'll reveal. Uh, Reminded me of this artwork. Check this out. Okay? So when you look at this, it looks like nothing right now. What is going on? It's an Amazon box. It looks, but then watch what he does. Turns it. Now we've got Cristiano Ronaldo. Look, there's two more. Okay? 
look, looks like nothing notable. But then we turn it, we've got Captain Jack Sparrow. One more here, nothing. It's just, what is going on? It's a box. Oh, we've got Harry Potter, okay? Right until the last moment of presentation, all that work's been done for so much time leading up to it, right? Right up until the moment of presentation, we're like, I don't get it, this looks worthless. Then he turns it, and in one moment, it's shown to have been masterful. And that's the way it often is for the Christian leader. If you try to tally up the score before that final fire burns away all the worthless stuff and shows what was real, we're bound to get our evaluations mixed up about what was good construction and what wasn't. It will only be shown for what it was on the other side of that judgment when the Lord has revealed it all for what it was and when he praises us, which is an awesome thing that he holds out. Finally, the work of the Christian leader is cross-shaped. The work of the Christian leader is cross-shaped. See if you can detect that as I read verses 6 through 13. Now, brothers and sisters, verse 6, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? You're already full. You're already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us. And I wish you did reign so we could also reign with you. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place, like men condemned to die. We've become a spectacle to the world, to both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. The dream for many worldly leaders is first class on private jets, speaking to adoring masses, financial comfort, greater and greater power, past struggles in the rearview mirror. You maybe have seen the clips I've seen where a pastor in Louisiana brags during his Sunday sermon that he's built the biggest house in the whole state. Implication, clearly the Lord approves of my ministry, he's saying. This is a little of the mentality the Corinthians have started to adopt, right? Following the practice of their leaders who have been steeped in worldly thinking. They're thinking comfort, riches, power. A great leader will end up amassing those things. So Paul uses biting sarcasm, actually, to critique them. Look at verse 8. Oh, you guys are feeling like kings now? I wish you were kings. It would be nice to share a throne with you. Then he continues on, like, wake up to reality. Let me give you a little window into what we're experiencing right now, life as apostles, right? Uh, Like a spectacle to the world, being paraded through the streets in shame, fools for Christ, weak, uh, dishonored, hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless, working with our own hands, right? That's our life. And he's saying, I'm not talking about in the past before we made it big. I'm talking about right now. These words would have made them cringe, almost certainly. 
right? In the Greco-Roman world, words like this were not pity-inducing. They were embarrassing, especially working with your hands, actually. Verse 12. Nobody works with their hands who wants to be respectable, right? That puts you outside the sphere of having any intellectual credibility. Why talk like this, Paul? There's only one explanation for why Paul would talk this way about himself, namely that back in chapter 3, verse 11, when he said the foundation of all of it was Jesus Christ, that he meant it. Like those weren't just words in 3.11. It's not just what Paul had to say because he was supposed to. Jesus is the foundation. Paul has literally aimed to shape every aspect of his identity and personhood and work and ministry after Jesus. The Jesus who traveled from place to place with nowhere to rest his head. The Jesus who was demeaned and mocked. The Jesus who was plotted against, refusing to retaliate. The Jesus who told Peter to get money for the temple tax out of the mouth of a fish. He didn't have it. The Jesus who lived a humble existence right up until the day he raised his hands to willingly be nailed to a cross and lay down his life for you and me. So to Paul, that cross isn't incidental to Christian ministry as if we're free to use any ministry methods we want as long as we tell people about the cross in the end. No, no. To Paul, any method that we use to minister the cross has to be shaped by that cross. That's why Jesus told his apostles that if they wanted to follow him, they'd have to deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow him to Gethsemane. This wasn't a ticket to fame and riches and celebrity. For 2,000 years, faithful Christian ministers have lived lives that in some way or another looked like this, like this passage that we're looking at here. Not on top of the world, not universally honored and revered, but suffering, experiencing great pain, getting bitten by the sheep that they're trying to feed. And by the way, for Paul's readers in Corinth who would have been very familiar with the Greek philosopher's solution to the problem of popular opinion turning against you, This would have been extra surprising. Greek philosophers loved attacking their audiences, actually. They'd get up in front of a crowd and say things like, you're probably not going to listen to me, but that's because you're ignorant. That's where the Corinthians probably expected Paul to go with this train of thought. Like, hey, you guys don't think I'm a good apostle? You're allowing me to be disparaged? Well, that's because you don't know anything. That's probably what they expected Paul to say. Instead, what's Paul's approach? When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we don't just remain silent because that could end up in the slandering of Christ, but we respond graciously. That's what we do. Because Jesus told us this is what the Christian life is going to be. He told us, hey, you're going to get dragged around on the bottom of everyone's shoes like you're their garbage. Why? Because your models of what you preach and what you preach is a Savior who was dragged around on the bottom of everyone's shoes like he was their garbage. Seminary students, if you think that ministry is going to be a social media page full of likes and a congregation of adoring fans who think you can do no wrong, buckle up. To lead God's people is to throw a cross over your shoulder and suffer. But we wouldn't have it any other way. Because when someone blesses us with an unfair insult, they just gave us an opportunity to identify with Christ. How much do we design our ministries to make us the comfortable heroes? And how much do our ministries look like Jesus carrying his cross to Calvary? Now for Paul, this is bigger than the specific examples he's using. 
uh, you might have noticed in verse 6, he says, uh, I'm using Apollos and myself as a case study for illustration to benefit you. I'm applying these things to us, right? Implication. I'm really trying to model here how you guys should relate to each other in Corinth. Apollos and I, we've got no problem with each other. We run in different lanes, but we're on the same team. We're one. I don't want you. We don't want you to favor one of us over the other, so don't. We don't think we're superior to each other. Why do you think you're superior to each other? Everything you have was given to you. That's what he's saying. And in a key moment in his argument, he drops in this quote that has stumped many scholars over the centuries. He says, so you may learn from us the meaning of saying nothing beyond what is written. That's not an Old Testament quote. So... What does it mean? When Paul talks elsewhere about what is written, he's always talking about Scripture. And while a plug for the sufficiency of Scripture might fit in so many other places in Paul's writings, here it seemed to me that it's kind of like out of left field here in 1 Corinthians 4. Like we're not talking, we haven't been talking about this. Why are we throwing in this thing about the Bible, right? But then on closer look, it actually makes sense, right? Follow this. What's the problem with the rivalries that have developed in Corinth? It's pride, right? That that my faction is superior to your faction. And what's the basis of pride? The basis of pride is I know better than God. And the antidote of thinking I know better than God is to say, God, you know better than me, and I submit myself to what you say. And where do we have access to what God says? In the pages of Scripture. So some of the Corinthian leaders and teachers, they've been going well beyond what Scripture says to offer all of their wise perspectives on life, their own ideas, as if they have better stuff to say than God does in his word, right? We've listened to preachers like that, right? Amazing stories, compelling arguments, no Scripture, but super impressive. In response to that, Paul says, hey, Apollos and I have modeled to you what's appropriate by limiting ourselves, Paul and Apollos, to unpacking what's written, we say, well, isn't what the, what's written, isn't it what Paul wrote? But think about it, though. Every argument he's made so far in this letter, if you scan back the first four chapters, what has he done for each one? He's backed it up with Scripture from the Old Testament, his Scripture, our Old Testament, right? Chapter 2, verse 9, chapter 2, 16, chapter 3, verse 19, now chapter 3, verse 20. So he's like, hey, I've been showing you along the way. Stay cross-shaped in your ministry by sticking close to the text instead of preaching your own ideas. Paul has every right as an apostle to say to the Corinthians, stop with the divisions, agree, end the rivalries, thus says Paul. But what he's done instead in these past couple chapters is, hey, look how the Bible has always said that the sort of thinking that you guys are engaged in right now is sinful and wrong and won't get you anywhere. So stop it on that basis. If we want to bring glory to God in our ministries, instead of getting glory for ourselves, we'll do well to follow this model of continuously pointing people to Scripture to validate what we're saying. Now they become dependent on the Word and not dependent on us. Our big idea this morning is this. Let's think of Christian leaders as we ought to. In all those five ways that we looked at in this text, right? Christian leaders are servants. That the work of Christian leaders will be tested. The Christian leaders are part of a wealth of resources belonging to the church. The Christian leaders answer to God. The work of a Christian leader is cross-shaped. Let's think of Christian leaders as we ought to. This passage came at a good time for me because I was guilty on multiple of these fronts just this week. If I'm honest, a big part of me doesn't want to be the nameless waiter bringing the meal. 
I want to be the hero parading through the convention center with a dozen adoring people following beside me. Part of me doesn't want to have to be so tethered to the text. I think I could get you to find me funny and clever and engaging and creative if I wasn't constrained by the discipline of staying so close to the text. Part of me doesn't want Christian ministry to come with discomfort. I'm loving how little relational drama we have right now at North Sub, but to the point where I can find myself, I can feel myself starting to idolize it. But the Holy Spirit has reminded me in this text, hey, Christian leaders aren't like other leaders. We've got a different role to play, different standards by which we're measured, a different goal altogether. As we lead and as we relate to our leaders, let's think of Christian leadership as we ought to. Let's pray. Lord, in the capacities in which you've uh, called us to lead, we want to do so in a cross-shaped fashion. We want to do so in a way that builds on the foundation of your son, Jesus Christ. We want to do so in a way that builds a building that's fitting for that foundation, based not on ourselves, our own personalities, our own wisdom, our own skill, but based on the good news of what Jesus did when he emptied himself, when he laid himself down for us in death and then raised, was raised up again to new life so that we could have new life in him. Help us, whether it's teaching downstairs in kids' ministry or in our parenting or in serving in small group leadership, any of the various places of leadership that you've called us to, help us to steward those leadership positions in such a way that's faithful to you, that looks like the cross of your son. It's in his name we pray.